our series on systematic theology. Hi, Bailey. Uh, and and you, uh, we are just barely getting into our series. We had a week on why study systematic theology, which is just another way of saying organized theology. The, uh, then, then last week, Pastor Dave talked about the Word of God. So the overarching unit in systematic theology that we will be in this, this spring until the until the break is, uh, is the doctrine of the Word of God. And today we're at this very, very important and often misunderstood topic of the canon of Scripture. The word canon has one N. Uh, so it's, it's a word that means rule, as in a ruler, uh, a ruler that we measure with. And so let me pray, and I'll, we'll discuss this. And this is, this is a topic that you could spend weeks and weeks on. We've, we're going to spend one week. So there's a chance you have lots of questions. I'll do my best to answer them, but let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, being kind to us. Thank you that we have the Bible. Thank you that in our Bible are the books you want us to have. Thank you that it can be trusted. Thank you that it points us to Jesus Christ. We pray we would be humble people who love you, who know what we believe and why we believe it. Pray that we would be transformed by your spirit to, to love your word and be shaped, become more and more like Jesus, full of love and patience and grace and truth. In his name we pray, amen. So our overarching textbook for our series is this Systematic Theology textbook by Wayne Grudem. Uh, this is the second edition. These can be purchased in the bookstore at basically cost. We don't make money on that. If you want a deeper dive, I would recommend Michael Kruger um, in his book, Canon Revisited. Um, Michael Kruger uh, is, was one of, is one of my seminary professors. He is one of the experts in the world on early Christianity. He, uh, maybe I'm not easily impressed enough, but in all my life I've encountered, you know, probably 10 people where I'm like, wow, like this person is off the charts, intelligent and informed. And he is one of them. Um, incredibly uh, Talented guy, smart fellow, uh, studied under a guy at the University of Edinburgh who is also an expert, so he, he's learned from the best. But the canon of scripture means simply this. It's the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. So when you open up your Bible to the table of contents, you're looking at a series of books bound together now, and we call that the canon. Uh, so how did we get it? What does that mean for us as Christians? And this is really important because most attacks on Christianity ultimately are attacks on the Bible. Sooner or later, that's what it'll come down to. Um, push comes to shove. And so it's important that we know this. 
Uh, anybody know a rec fairly recent book or movie that really, book and movie, that really challenged the idea of canon? About, say, 20 years, in the last 20 years. Sir? The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code did. And, and it's, what's funny is it sounds persuasive when you read those books. My next door neighbor was heavily persuaded by that. Um, but it's not actually very historically accurate. So first we start with the Old Testament. <clears throat> the Old Testament canon, what was, what was the books of the Bible? What were, what were God's words that we needed to have in the Old Testament? What was the first portion of it? We talked about it last week. And that first portion really is the Ten Commandments. The first word of God that was written down was the Ten Commandments. It was written in stone by, it says, and obviously using anthropomorphic language here, using human language, with the finger of God. God wrote the beginning of our Bible. And then importantly, it was deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that word covenant becomes important. A covenant is a binding agreement, a binding document that determines, that determines the nature of a relationship between two people. So covenants commonly were like this. We've learned in, by studying ancient cultures that around, um, around ancient Israel. Commonly what would happen is, a king would come in and either conquer a region or be invited to rule that region. And then there would be covenant documents written up. They would say, okay, by you, King Bill, taking over, we, your subjects, agree to behave this certain way. We're not going to rebel against you. We'll pay taxes accordingly. Um, we'll be loyal to you. And then... King Bill has a response. He says, okay, uh, my, my responsibility is I will be loyal to you. I will protect you. I will use my, my uh, troops to rule over you uh, and, and keep you from outside invasions. But then there are also what happens if you don't do those things. The law will come down upon you or whatever. So, so there's covenants in there, and, and God writes the first covenant documents, the, the Ten Commandments. And he puts them in the Ark of the Covenant, so it's symbolizing this agreement, this union with the people. And, but then as time goes on, Moses, who wrote the Ten Commandments as well, later on, well, it's going to be papyrus, and it's going to be, um, going to be conveyed orally often too. He's writing down more books. This book, Deuteronomy, becomes especially important. Uh, because it's the second law, it's, it's rehashing the first four books of the Bible in one book, pretty much, and it is placed in the ark. So now the, this canon is growing, which is an interesting thought. But then it seems like, in the Sadducees of Jesus' time, would say, okay, that's the end. We got these five books that God has given us, we don't need any more. But before those Sadducees, what's an interesting thing is Joshua takes over after Moses, writes something down, and is told to put it in the book of the law, add on to it. So there, there is this sense that the canon is meant to grow from the very earliest ages for a while. We're going to get to where 
cannon stops. But it's, we have this somewhat surprising thing. Only Moses has added to the canon, and now Joshua comes along, his successor, writes uh, things down, places it with the other documents. Now, so now there's this precedent of adding to the book of the law, and it continues in the Old Testament. Usually, people who are identified as prophets, who God is called to be prophets, who speak, say, thus saith the Lord, they are the ones usually writing it down. So you've got Samuel, this great prophet, really uh, a really transitional figure. Moses, in many ways, is the first prophet. He's kind of the fountainhead prophecy. Samuel kind of takes over uh, generations later. And then what's interesting is if you read Samuel, there are references to other scriptures in Samuel. The books of Chronicles. Later. Chronicles is going to refer back to Samuel, actually. And then Chronicles is going to reference the book of Kings. And Chronicles is going to reference the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to reference other books. Jeremiah's prophecy is told to be written down. So, there's, and I've got a typo from, uh, from last week here. I forgot to delete. But we have the Bible, this canon of Scripture, of God's people needing to know certain things from God and God being sure to communicate those things to us. So uh, we have this list that's growing and growing and every single word is meant to be understood as God's word. So as, these, as God is directing humans, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about inspiration, the... in... in uh, Dave, what was the text last week? Oh, 2 Peter or 1 Peter? I'm trying to remember. I should know this. It's in my master's thesis. Uh, well, it talks about humans being, prophets being carried along by the Spirit of God. 2 Peter. And the, the, the image, image there is the image of a, of a sailboat, basically. So the sailboat, humans are the sailboat, and God is filling the winds with the Spirit of God of them as they write it down. So they're both, both at work here. Now over time, what ends up happening is this book grows. So how many books do we have in the Old Testament? Anybody know off the top of their head? 39. 39 books. As time goes on, you, you'll first century Jews end up with much less than 39 books, it seems. They have the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then they only have 13 historical books, or what they would call the, the early or latter pro or prophets. And so you're thinking, wait, where did, they've only got 13? But what you need to understand is how the books were bound. Scrolls were kept together. So many of our books were historically joined together. And this becomes, can actually become really important in other areas, uh, scholarly interests, but not too important for us. But so we have 1st and 2nd Kings. That's one book, the book of Kings. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, one book to the Jews and Old Testament believers. 1st uh, and 2nd Kings, Samuel, all those together. But also, Judges and Ruth were historically bound together. 
You'll notice at the beginning of Ruth when we preached through it, in the, in the days of the judges, boom, those were bound together. Ezra and Nehemiah historically have been one book. Uh, that, that's kind of surprising to us. Lamentations, we don't know for sure that Jeremiah uh, wrote that, but that's tradition. Either way, it, it's actually not important who wrote it at this point, but they've been bound together. And then the real surprising one is what, the, what is known as the Twelve. The Twelve is all the minor prophets. They were all bound together in one book. Um, so, so all these 13 historical books, even though it seems like there's a lot less, really there isn't. Uh, it's the same number of books. And then the four books of hymns and precepts, that's the writings. So that's what we would often call our wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, um, all bound together. So the Old Testament canon is exactly what we have. Now what's interesting about this is the way I've been describing it, it seems like it's free reign. Now, if you write a book and you're, you believe in God, it's going to be scripture. You just, as long as you know the right people and chuck it in the right bin, you're good to go. But that's actually not the case. See, people are writing these whole times, but most people know that God is only speaking through certain people, through prophets, people who are called to do this. So very early on, we have this, this book that we now call the Apocrypha, uh, that, which is believed by Roman Catholics to be scripture. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, these books are not accepted. They're rejected as scripture. They're never treated as having divine authority. So even though people might read them, say like, oh, this is kind of a helpful story, or this is uh, helpful advice, people never consider that God's word until much, much later. Uh, the Apocrypha is never cited in the New Testament by Jesus. It's, the Old Testament is cited 295 times in the New Testament by the apostles. There is one allusion to the Apocrypha in the New Testament, but it's, not, it's stated as an illustration, not as authoritative teaching. Anybody know what that allusion is? It's pretty obscure. In the book of Jude, there's this reference to uh, what happened to Moses' body. Anybody ever experienced that? And basically, Jude quotes, uh, I think it's First Enoch, which is an apocryphal book. It might be Second Enoch. Um, just as kind of a story. It's as an illustration, though. It's not as authoritative teaching. So there is one example of that, but it's not, they're not building an argument around that the way the Old Testament is used. Now, the Apocrypha is useful for some scholarly purposes. So because it was written by contemporaries of some, um, or more contemporary, of some of our Old Testament books, we can learn a lot about language from it. So just as uh, we might say, what's a word that has changed um, over time? So the word uh, suffer. When I use the word suffer, most of us are thinking pain, uh, challenge, difficulty. But historically, that word has also meant allow. I'm going to allow you to do things like that. 
And that's one argument I now have, even though I was raised on using the King James Version, I, I kind of have against using the King James Version, is that is in the, since 1611, since it was published, some of those words have changed so much that it's, it, you, need, you need almost a translation of that uh, at times. It's not a sin to use it. it is, if you know what you're doing, it's great. But, um, so the Apocrypha can be useful. Like if you're studying Old Testament texts and you want to know how this word is used, it, it can be helpful that way, but it's never treated as having divine authority. So where did it come from? In, I, uh, I, I should have looked up when Jerome wrote, published his translation. So the Vulgate was this really a great scholar, Roman Catholic, um, from generations ago, uh, early in the church. I want to say, John, do you have your smartphone? Can you look up when Jerome published his Vulgate for me? Um, he, he published, it's a Latin translation of the Bible. And it's not a great, it's not the, the best Latin translation of the Bible, but for what they had in no printing presses, it was pretty good. But, but Jerome included the Apocrypha just as like an addendum. Like, hey, if you want to read these, if these can be helpful, they're not scripture, but Adam and, but as soon as they were bound in the same book, people became, started to get confused. Then, for generations, certain teachings start to be taken out of those apocryphal books, such as purgatory. Uh, and other, 382? So 4th century was my, I was going to guess 5th, but the end of the 4th century, he writes this. And that is the Bible of the Catholic Church basically until modern times, um, which is just a remarkable literature, literary achievement when you think about it, uh, if, if it didn't distort the word of God in a confusing way. Um, but this leads, the, leads us to the question, who decides what is in Scripture? What is Scripture? What isn't? Is it just as the Da Vinci Code says, a, group, a, a conspiracy Christian conservatives secretly gathering together saying, we can't allow this book to be part of our book, uh, but we'll have this one. Is that what happened? It's not. Uh, the, and we'll talk about how that happened. Um, the Apocrypha, though, becomes official scripture for the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent. Now, the Council of Trent is after the Reformation. That's how modern it is. It's in the 1500s. And they accept the Apocrypha at this point because the Apocrypha starts to teach things the reformers say are unscriptural. They say, oh, they're purgatory, unscriptural. Doing works of penance for your salvation, unscriptural. They say, uh-uh, look, look, there's this verse over here in Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Or fill in the blank. Um, or Tobit, or Judith, or whatever. And uh, so they, they basically grab the Apocrypha and use it as a club against the Reformation. Um, it had never been considered um, scripture until then. So now, we're, we've set that aside for a minute, we'll come back to it. The New Testament canon, how did we get 
the New Testament canon. Now remember that idea of a covenant and covenant documents. God makes a covenant with a community. And the covenant documents explain the, um, the agreement, the binding agreement between the ruler and his people. Well, what we move into the New Testament, which is also called the New Covenant. And Jesus says it's a new covenant. And this new covenant was promised in the old covenant. And we, what we see is in Deuteronomy 18, there's this promise of this prophet coming that's like Moses. Speak like Moses. Prophet like me. And what's really interesting is nobody, no faithful Jew, thought that Isaiah was that guy. Nobody thought that David was that guy. Everybody knew that there's, we're looking for someone unique. And, it, and over time, it becomes more and more clear this person is a king. And over time, it becomes more and more clear this person is God himself. And so they're expecting the Messiah to come. And now when you think about the Old Testament, it's an incomplete book. If you read it in, in the order of that most Jewish Bibles are written in. The book of Chronicles is the last book. The end of the book of Chronicles, the people are returned to the promised land, but still no king. Still no savior. Still not home yet. God is still not ruling over their people. So there's this lingering like, so when's, when's it going to culminate? When we, the, the end of our, the way our Bible is arranged, Malachi, the last book, is there's these prophecies of someone coming. And so the Old Testament, by nature, is this incomplete book. And so with a Messiah, we need a Messiah to come and, and finish the story. And so if the Messiah is God, which is what we see him basically promised to be, and then Jesus himself revealing that, revealing himself that way, then his word is the word of God, which means his word deserves to be written down for his people. Just like the Old Testament word of God was saying, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord. So now we have Jesus speaking, and now it makes sense why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got these stories of our king explaining the terms of the covenant to us, explaining how we can be bound to him. Because he died for us, lived for us first, rose from the dead, promises to preserve and protect his people, lead them into uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And then Jesus gives the apostles the Holy Spirit in this very important verse in John 14, 6. Can somebody read John 14, 6 for us? So important, I'll wait. Okay, good. So that's in there. And then Jesus is saying, you, You've got to come through me. And then in we we come to uh, the high priestly, we, if you get to John 13 through 17, Jesus is 
talking to his, uh, his apostles and he, says, he shares something that it's better for Jesus to go away. Send the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to re- help them remember everything that Jesus needs them to know. So he gives the, uh, he gives the apostles the ability to understand and interpret doctrine. And so we have the New Testament apostles with equal authority as the Old Testament prophets. So lying to them in Acts 5 is the equivalent in that situation is lying to the Holy Spirit, which is lying to God. The New Testament apostles have the authority to command, which is something usually only God does. We're told that they spoke and write with the Spirit. So the apostles have this really remarkable short-term gift not to be repeated. Okay, so then if, God, if Jesus has promised his apostles to be able to write and remember things that should be in Scripture, we can start with those 12 people who are in the room with Jesus. Matthew was in the room. So his gospel is in. And by the way, Matthew's gospel, by far the most popular gospel in the early church. Um, John is in. John's gospel, in. And that also means that if he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, those are in. Uh, Not all of these were accepted right away. We'll talk about that. But uh, over time, they were certainly recognized. That means what Peter writes is in. He's in the room. So 1st and 2nd Peter. But then in 2nd Peter, Peter makes this interesting quote. Everything Paul writes. Scripture. So now... Paul's writings, which is a big chunk of the New Testament, 13 books, boom, they're in. But what's really interesting is if you read Paul in 1 Timothy, he quotes Luke. Close, close acquaintance and sets it aside in Old Testament statements, basically saying Luke's writing is equal in authority as this Old Testament text. So Luke is in. Gospel according to Luke and Acts. James seems to be in. Because, one, he's, he's later acknowledged to be like an apostle, but um, Paul treats him as an apostle repeatedly in the book of Acts. It's always referring to him on par as with Peter and John. Um, so Hebrews, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Early on, people thought Paul did, weren't sure. But there was actually not much debate about Hebrews from an early, early on. People just knew it's one, it's quoting so much of the Old Testament, it's basically teaching the whole Old Testament in light of Christ. So there's no challenges there. And when you read it, the power of God is so powerful. Um, it's hard to get around it. Mark, slowly, or not very slowly, is actually the first gospel written, um, is basically accepted because tradition had it that he was close, close, close to Peter. In a sense, the gospel of Mark is the gospel, the real gospel of Peter. Because Mark wrote what Peter taught. And you'll see certain things in there. And if you're going to discard Mark, uh, what's interesting is basically the vast majority of it's in Matthew anyhow. Um, it, 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 uh, there's hardly anything in Mark that's not in Matthew um, or Luke. But then the really challenging ones are this. Jude and 2 Peter. And we'll, we'll talk about this for a second. And this idea of 
how do we determine which books are in the canon? Was it, was it the secret society? Was it Emperor Constantine exerting authority? Well, the first thing that people are looking for is, does this claim to be the word of God? Are there qualities, meaning that it seems to be without error, without known error? Does it speak to us with power? Does it seem to change people? And then we have this other connection. Is it connected to the apostles? We know Jesus gave special uh, effort and uh, privilege to the apostles. And then does does the church recognize it? So if we were to go back, There, you can go print a $100 bill if you want, be breaking the law, but that doesn't give it authority. That doesn't give it value. But if you take $100, in, $100 bill into somebody and they recognize it, they're, they're not the federal government, they can't say that it has, it's worth $100, but if someone treats it like it's $100, they just recognize that it's a good Uh, bill, well, that's different than making it equal to $100. So what happens is the Catholic Church starts to say, well, we decide what is a $100 bill. We get to decide that. The church gets to decide that. That's not the historic position of Christians. Christians instead have said, no, that's a $100 bill no matter what. We just recognize it. We're not We're not saying it's $100. We don't say it's $100 because we say so. We're just saying it's a $100 bill and it's the right one. We're just recognizing it. So the the question is, is how does the church receive it? That's always the language that's used. We received the scriptures. We didn't make them. We didn't create them. And all throughout this, the Holy Spirit is at work. And so the, the idea is that God, the the scripture itself is self-authenticating. So you can't go to just historical arguments about the apostles, although that's that's helpful, because then it's taking the authority away from scripture. You're saying that history is authoritative over scripture. You You can't say it's the church that decides what's scripture, because then the church becomes authoritative over scripture, and that's unbiblical. Um, that's what the Roman Catholic has done, church has done. And then recognizing the divine qualities, the question is, how can we do that? Well, if the Holy Spirit's involved in this, we end up with John 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is a really challenging thing for us sometimes. It's basically saying that the reason why some people don't believe the Bible to be God's word is because they aren't his sheep yet. Sometimes they read it and they're like, I've talked to so many people, like, I tried reading the Bible, it was just, I could not understand any of it. And then all of a sudden they're converted. And the Bible comes alive. The, the words on the page weren't changed. They, they've become God's sheep. Uh, and they hear his voice. And so the church is involved with that. And what we find is that very rarely, Uh, I'll show you this in a second. Um, Very early on, we have 27 books in the New Testament, 22 of them, no questions. All accepted immediately, basically. 
So in this target here that Dr. Kruger has, you've got this color, this grayed area, which are books have become canonical. And the other, uh, others are the white, are those who are outside the canon. So right away, you got 22 out of 27, and it's the vast majority of the books. Um, they're recognized. So then the next five, in the early centuries of the church, we're talking first two centuries pretty much, there's just some debate. So like these books might be scripture. We're, we're kind of watching. It seems like they are, but we're not totally sure. What do you guys over in Antioch think? Yeah, we think so. What do you guys over in, um, in uh, Alexandria think? Yeah, we think so, but we're not sure about this other one. And so there's some disputed books in here. And over time, basically, f five of them are like, yeah, no, we're, we, we thought so, and now we're sure. This, this seems to be God's word. Um, and, we're, and across the spectrum, it's the same books, with one exception. There's one church that, doesn't, that only has 22 New Testament books. Anybody know the denomination? We almost never interact with it in, in the West. It's a, it's a division of the Eastern Orthodox called the, the Ethiopian Orthodox, the Coptic Church. Um, very, very ancient church, very old, but they, they have left out, I think, Jude, Second Peter. I can't remember what they are. But anyhow, um, what's really interesting is that out here, there are books that are perfectly, so when you've got this core of 22 books, what you can start to do is use those 22 books to evaluate others. So these other five that end up in there, they're like, yeah, they, they're completely truthful. They align with what we know to be God's word. Uh, they're claiming to be God's word. We, people are reading them and being changed by them. That's good. And, but there's also some books that think, oh, maybe these are God's word. The Shepherd of Hermas. Any of you guys read The Shepherd of Hermas lately? Probably the strongest candidate for scripture but ultimately rejected, totally orthodox. But if people are just like, it's not the word of God. Um, and then there were heretical books. So the, the Gospel of Thomas rejected right away. Um, a couple books that have Peter's name attached, which everybody knew Peter didn't write, uh, were, were chucked to the side. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, again, not written by Barnabas. People are always... Uh, trying to attach an apostle's name to stuff because of that ap apostolic origin recognized from the very beginning. So the church does not give the, the Bible authority. It recognizes it. So the Roman Catholic Church would say, well, how can you do that? What you need, see the Roman Catholic Church, what you need Protestants, you poor Protestants, you young folks, only 500 years old, what you need is a divine table of contents. And that's what we are, the Catholic Church. We're just here to care for you. So in a sense, what happens is that the Roman Catholic Church functions as a 28th New Testament book. They say, okay, we're going to be the divine table of contents. But then how do you prove that? How do you prove we should trust you? what ends up happening is they just appeal to their own authority. So instead of saying, as, Christ, as Protestants do, sola scriptura, scripture is the final authority, 
It becomes sola ecclesia. The church is the final authority. The church becomes over the word of God, and then for it can interpret the word however it wants, distort it however it wants, ignore it however it wants. But what's interesting is if you follow, if you agree with the Roman Catholics there, they didn't have a canon then until after the Protestants did. Because they didn't have a canon until the Council of Trent. Because they added the Apocrypha after them. You follow that? So the Roman Catholic Church would say, we don't even... If, if to follow their own principles, they basically didn't have a Bible for centuries. And what we see in the Bible is that it's the Word that creates the church. God speaks, life comes forth. People are called together. People are changed. That's what we always see happening in the Bible. Not, the vice, not vice versa. We don't see the church and then all of a sudden, oh, hey, here's the word. It's always the opposite. The word and then the church flows out of the life that comes from the word. So it's not authenticated ultimately by a church, although the church can recognize it. It's not given ultimately through historical investigation because the word of God is God's word. He has the highest authority. So we can't move it to humans. We can't say, here's why the Bible's the Bible. Because they're the, they're the oldest books, closest to Jesus, which they are, by the way. Um, we're, we're not going to move that authority to them. Some people say, well, so if we move it just to historical investigation, it all becomes subjective on what certain scholars are going to tell us so-called neutral scholars, what we ought to believe. But what ends up happening is nobody's neutral, and the books of the Bible end up looking exactly what, the way they want them to look. So how many of you have ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Heard of them from Portland? They're, they're a huge deal in the, I want to say, late 90s. Uh, bunch of liberal scholars and what they, you can go buy a Jesus seminar Bible and it's full of different colored texts because if it's red, then Jesus probably spoke that. If it's pink, maybe Jesus spoke that. If it's blue, uh, less likely. It's probably just people intruding their own teachings in the Bible. But what ends up happening is those people make the Bible look exactly like they want it to believe. They say, like, I don't like the Jesus that says this, so that he probably didn't. Let's just change the color. Let's highlight it a different color. Um, so nobody's neutral. And so how do we get to if the Bible is being added to in the Old Testament and then growing in the New Testament how do we get to where we would say as Christians, that's it? We don't need more. We're not Mormons. Say we need new prophecies. Well, the Bible itself tells us that Jesus is the final revelation. In these last days, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our 
our forefathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So the New Testament is all about Jesus, about displaying Jesus, revealing Jesus. And if we see him clearly, we don't need further revelation. And the idea of the last days, these, in these days in Hebrews 1, it's the idea of this is the end, these final days. And now the book has an ending. It's about Jesus in his kingdom in the book of Revelation. And now the, there's a happy ending. And God is ruling. And what makes sense is, what's, is that Revelation be at the very end of the Bible. It's the ending. Just like Genesis makes sense at the very beginning. It's the beginning. And what's really interesting is that the very end of Revelation 22, there's these words that say, curses are going to come on you if you add to this book or take away from it. So we have this ending finally. We have this warning and encouragement that we should read this book in the book of Revelation and um, this warning not to add into it. Then the question is, well, why aren't those other books in the Bible, for those of us who are like hearing this and really struggling a little bit maybe, I don't know that any of you are, but might be, there really aren't any strong candidates to be added to the Bible. There, there just aren't. Um, all, the, all the ancient texts have been rejected because they don't align with what the, what the Bible teaches. They weren't recognized by the earliest Christians they, were either, they either had errors, they were teaching heresy, uh, or they never claimed to be the word of God. And then more modern texts that have risen, we're talking 400, 500 AD, almost all of those are heretical. Almost all of them are an uh, basically an injection of Greek philosophy into Jesus. So you have him saying things like I quoted a couple weeks ago from the pulpit. To enter the kingdom of God, if you're a woman, you've got to become a man. Jesus never said that. So, so this also means for us, practically, if the canon is closed, that any supernatural illumination or experience has to be subject to Scripture. The canon is the rule. So God, we believe, can reveal certain things to us. We, he can use our experiences to display himself, and we can be convinced that God isn't there. But in the end, we have to say, okay, here's what I experienced, and that seems to align with Scripture. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust it. But then if you say, here's my experience, and some of it now I realize uh, that's, that wasn't quite right. We have to actually subject our experiences to the to the Bible. It's very, and, and most American Christianity problems um, come from a refusal to do this. It just felt so right. But the Bible says it's a sin. Yeah, but if, if it feels so right, it can't be wrong. Um, it, ultimately, we ha if, if the Bible is God's word, it has to be the boss. Yeah. I have a question back on Revelation 22. Yeah. The yeah. The argument against that is that um, if anyone adds to the prophecy of this book, right. that's a mm -hmm. statement that 
just for the book of Revelation. How do you, yeah. How do you argue that? that, that my, my argument is that because of the placement of the book of Revelation and the fact that, that early... By the way, the books we have are basically because of Christians. The books are this way. They were all scrolls before. And then uh, they started binding the four Gospels together in a codex. Became a book. But New Testament texts were written in codexes like that. And the, the thought is, is it coincidence that God put those verses in that book that has to be at the end of the Bible, logically? Like, there's never been a discussion of, sometimes there's a discussion of how to order the books of the Bible. There's never been a discussion about Revelation. So it's immediate context, for sure, um, dealing with the, the book of Revelation. Now, I think there's significance in the fact that that falls at the end of the Bible. You might disagree with me. Maybe you're not convinced. But um, good question. Um, our confidence in the Bible is based on God's faithfulness. It's not on doing the right historical research, as important as that is. Uh, it's ultimately trust in God. God will not let the church go without his necessary word. Jesus says we need the word of God to live. Maybe more than food, more than bread. Um, God has guided his church to recognize his word. This is part of our redemption. The fact that you, we have a Bible is God showing his great love for us. Saying, here, let me, let me give you the words you need to know. And so we wouldn't be believers if it weren't for God giving us the word of God. In many, way, um, in many ways, when you think about this, is a, it makes sense that God has spoken in the word. Because we know that if God is real, he's got to have at least the capacities we have to speak and to listen. And we have those capacities. So without something like the word of God, without some sort of revelation, it would be like having a telephone in your house and a telephone in your loved one's house, and never using it. Like, why is it there? Why is the telephone of being able to speak and listen, why would we have those things if, there were, if, it, if we never took advantage of it? Um, God has given us the internal testimony that this is the word of God, so as you read it, there might be times where are like, this is really hard for me. But the more you read it, the more you realize, like, this is different than any other book. J.C. Ryle makes this point, and I'm presenting a thesis on J.C. Ryle's Doctrine of Scripture on Tuesday. Uh, he was a 19th century Anglican bishop in England. And he makes this point where if you read the books that were written, particularly the Old Testament, there's no real literary skill in that region whatsoever. There's no training to write great stories, nothing like that. They didn't produce anything. This is not like the Greeks and the Romans. And yet they produce the Bible, which is, had more influence, reaches into far more subjects uh, as far as human existence goes than any other text. It's like, how can you explain that unless God is actually speaking? And, but God has given us the internal has given us a church that helps us recognize his word. We're covenant people, belong to him. Um, God's given us internal testimony. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word. And then God has also given us historical data. And all these things can work together to confirm that 
He is good. He's given us this Bible. So again, this is probably one of the most technical um, discussions on the Bible, doctrine of scripture. Any questions, comments, concerns? Roland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three twenty-five A.D. Yep. <clears throat> no, good question. The 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 Council of Nicaea. There is an authoritative. That's just three twenty-five. There is twenty-seven books at that point. But earlier, there are there are scriptural lists that different people are passing around. Uh, Athanasius writes one, I think, even before that. If you read Eusebius, who is an ancient a uh, Roman um, historian, he talks about this. And he was at uh, Nicaea. He, he knew um, Constantine. Uh, yeah, at that time the canon had been completed for 200 years. So, uh, yeah, so the, the Trent is way, way after. And, and Nicaea, there's already people convinced that we have the Bible at that point. It's just, in a sense, that's them writing it down. Here are the books, pass it around. Uh, yeah, John. Somebody also commented that both the Shepherd of Hermas and the Letter of Clement as being uh, perhaps first century. Yeah, yeah. They also did not consider, they themselves, the authors, right. did not consider their writing. Exactly. But pointed to scripture. Yeah, they never, they never claimed to be speaking God's word. And yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Septuagint is just a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, it's the same Old Testament. And what's really interesting, I meant to say this and I forgot, is if you we talk about the Old Testament text, everybody's picking fights with Jesus about everything all the time in the New Testament. But the Pharisees are, and Sadducees are never picked, well, Sadducees kind of are, but not really. The, the Pharisees and all the, the Jewish tradition, nobody's picking fights with Jesus about what should be in the Bible. It never comes up. Because it was just agreed. We just know. Jesus you, Jesus, you might be wrong about a lot of things, but you got your Bible right. Um, and it's really the other way around. Jesus saying, you might be wrong about a lot of things but you got the Old Testament right. Anything else? John? Just there's also that idea that when there wasn't any question about transmission in the historical record of the Old Testament, when Jesus said, have you not read? Or right. it is written, yeah. he expected them to know yeah. that there was agreement about what came down through history. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Isaac? Yeah. Good question. Sure. Oh, you, you Christians just have faith. You just have blind faith and there's no evidence. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, the, the first answer, Isaac, is that, and we talked about that, we've talked about this before, is that when you're talking about highest authorities for knowledge, the, re, the reasoning has to be at least a little bit circular. 
Because as soon as you appeal to somewhere else, you've given up your ground as to what's the highest authority. So there, there is an element there too. Um, yeah, it, it, but it, it's a humbling truth too. It's another reason why people aren't going to say it. It's like the reason why the Bible's maybe close to you is because you, you, the Holy Spirit's not at work in you. Like that's, that's a challenging thing to hear. Uh, but that does seem to be what the Bible says. And a, go, a good way to do that is to, to sit down and read the Bible with those people. Just read it with them. And say, like, let's get together and read. And they'll start to read it, and you can explain it to them. And lots of times the Holy Spirit will use you to open the book to others. It's a great question. Um, Jim. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the how do we what do we make as non-cessationist people who believe that New Testament gifts of prophecy and so forth prophecy particularly continue? What do we make of that? Um, the first answer is that MacArthur has a point, in that you can be a believer. And, and, not, and be content with these books, the sufficiency of this book. Uh, yeah, that, that, there's, there's a point there. Now, what's really interesting is philosophically, that's a very strong argument. It's a very strong argument to say, like, if this is the word of God, we don't need God to speak to us in any other way. I'm convinced of that philosophically, but then when I read the Bible... And the way the Bible speaks of those gifts, the Bible then presses on my philosophy. My theology starts to change. So I see then the Bible saying, no, these gifts continue. There's no reason to believe they cease. But we need, to, we need to recognize they are not coming with the authority the Bible is coming on. So, um, yeah, I... <clears throat> MacArthur, there's times where I would talk like MacArthur to some off-the-rails Pentecostals. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say the gifts have ceased, but I would really challenge them on do you really believe the Word of God is the Word of God? Or do you feel like you have to have a revelation this morning through, through somebody else's mouth instead of just listening to the Word of God? Um, <clears throat> but most of the time, that's not the case. So, yeah. Um, Anything else, John? I just have a real problem, though, with Hebrews chapter 1 nullifying the prophet that we see in Acts and, right. and the prophecy, excuse me, the uh, gift of prophecy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does Hebrews chapter 1 then nullify what Paul was saying? Right. Because, I mean, ultimately, that's what they're saying. No. Leading contenders, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the apocryphal books were inter intertestamental books, books that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So first and second Maccabees, stuff like that. Um, and Shepherd of Hermas was written after. So basically, the, the, uh, the Apocrypha is like an expanded Old Testament, but the same New Testament. Yeah. Um, anything else? All right, went way over. Sorry, I messed up our time to pray. It's, it's a really complicated, again, I would, if you have big questions, I would refer you back to uh, Kruger's book. It's, it's a little technical, no question. Canon Revisited, that's a second book on the canon. You can also go to his, his blog, which is called Canon Fodder, which I think is pretty clever, with one N uh, in the middle. And um, he's written all kinds of blog posts that will, can help you with this. And he's pretty interactive. I've seen him interact with comments even. Um, I've never tried it, but. Um, yeah, you can listen to his lectures. Uh, very, very, very helpful. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for the canon. We're thankful that when we go upstairs to hear Luke preached, we can be confident that it is the word of God. There have been no debates about it for centuries. God, that's good news to us. We pray we would listen carefully, that we would really listen as if it's you speaking to us because you are. We pray that everything that is preached, though, would also be weighed according to your word, that we would prove things and test them and walk away with all the truth that we need uh, and no false teaching. Lord, we pray we'd be humble people. We would uh, bow before you, grateful that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Another answer to Isaac's question, could we say that, like you said, that the historical data does kind of... It does. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty worn out, Tim. Are you, so are you going to be at the service? Yeah, I will. Do you yeah. want to do intercession? I, I, I can handle it. I can handle it. I can do it. It's up to you. No, I can handle it. Yeah, I'll do it. Thanks. Yeah.